Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's the Wonky Show. Announcements are coming in re-September, but are they all a bit thick and fast? Uh, we'll talk mental health, immigration, mergers, and nature is healing, because Correlate is back. It's all coming up. We will underfund you for research. Um, we recognise that your research is really important, um, and we will give you most of the money it takes to conduct world-leading research, but we won't give you it all. Um, we'll In the round, we'll, broadly speaking, fund you to teach students from our country. Um, now, in Scotland, they don't fund enough um, to... Um, the, the funding is insufficient to teach students uh, from Scotland, but there is... There's... Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Jim Dickinson and here to provide what Nicola Dandridge would call absolute clarity on what's going on. As usual, we have two excellent guests. In Ealing and Marie Graham is the Chief Exec at UKISA. And marie your highlight of the week, please. My highlight of the week, Jim, I think, uh, well, it's Mental Health Awareness Week and we kicked off the week at UKISA with a, a virtual yoga class on Monday, which I think has definitely been my highlight. So Brilliant. And in Brighton, the Vice-Chancellor at the University of Sussex, Adam Tickell. Adam, your highlight of the week, please. Well, the, my highlight of the week was getting out of my home for the first time and going to my office yesterday, which was an absolute treat. <laughs> Brilliant. So, yes, we start this week uh, with campuses reopening on Monday. OFS CEO Nicholas Dandridge said that universities had to offer, offer absolute clarity to students and then as the week progressed a few had a try. Anne-Marie explain what's going on here. Uh, well yeah I think um, in, a, in a fantastic example of, of the autonomy of the sector we've had uh, quite a few uh, varied announcements. The announcements that caused a huge media splash was the, the leaked news that uh, University of Cambridge would deliver all of its lectures online until summer 2021. Um, although it has been at pains to clarify that other teaching may take place face-to-face subject to social distancing requirements. Whereas at the other end of the spectrum, um, in in terms of really going for uh, uh, face-to-face, the University of Bolton has announced uh, a series of measures to ensure students can return to its campus uh, for teaching in autumn 2020. Let's, uh, Let's have a little listen to some of the stuff that was in Bolton's animation to explain their approach. We want every student to be able to travel to our university campus safely. That is why we are providing all our full-time students with the use of a bicycle so they can choose not to use public transport. We are also installing body temperature scanners at all of the entrances to our campus. These scanners can detect anyone that potentially could be unwell. Once inside the campus, we are also providing all of the necessary safety equipment, including masks, gloves and hand sanitizer. So that everyone can keep two meters apart, we have installed a clear and simple one-way navigation system around campus. We are dedicated to ensuring all of our washroom facilities are regularly checked and cleaned. The two-meter rule also applies to our classrooms. Normally, such spaces would accommodate around 25 students. But now we are reducing that to around five, so everyone can study safely with peace of mind. 
We are also protecting students by installing screens to help our staff conduct their lectures safely. We are even using hygienic keyboard covers to make sure all of the common contact points are safe to use and COVID secure. These rules don't just apply to classrooms. Workshops and laboratories have also been designed to be COVID safe. And that's not all. Like all of our buildings, our library is now operating a one-way system. Each student will be allocated a social distance trolley to collect books, which limit the number of students in this space at one time. It's not all hard work. Even in our social zones, we have introduced new safety measures, including one meter high screens on smaller tables, larger distances between tables and more snack stations so students spend less time queuing for that cappuccino or sandwich. We have also rolled out online learning materials and access to more digital resources alongside traditional paper documents. We have also introduced a simple system to reduce on-campus congestion by providing allocated sessions so that face-to-face -face tutorials can continue. We are also encouraging 12 hours per week of physical on-campus time so that students can still enjoy the benefits of university life whilst remaining safe. So what does a COVID secure study environment look like? Welcome to uni as it should be. See you in September for sure. Adam, there are similarities and differences between the two, those, those two announcements Amory highlighted. There are, of course. So, you know, the truth is, is that the Cambridge League really said that they're not going to teach lectures, but they are going to continue to teach face-to-face -face in the normal way. And um, Bolton, Bolton's announcement is not a million miles away from that. I think the truth is that we all face exactly the same challenge, is that how do we make a meaningful student experience in a condition where we are going to have to comply with forms of physical distancing? And I think every university is just working on the logistics of it right now. Um, we can do everything we can to provide their education uh, in, a, in a meaningful way. I think the danger is that students are going to miss out on some of the intangibles. And again, I know that a lot of thinking is going on up and down the country in making sure that we can make the learning experience and the broader experience as good as possible in the autumn. And Marie, I guess we can guess, can't we, that you know some courses are more likely to be able to actually access some some face to face in September, as opposed to others, and and, and there might be a kind of paucity of face to face. And 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 I guess if you know if you're able to pop back to your house somewhere else in the UK, that's one thing. But if you're an international student, kind of stuck in a socially distanced hall of residence, that's quite another. It's it can be quite an isolated experience to start with, but without having that that socially interaction which is you know part of what part of what an international student pays for that that social experience um it, it can be even more isolating and i think it's it's not just about it's not just about the teaching um the face-to-face -face teaching for them it's about that the wider social interaction and also for the for the home students as well i mean let's not forget that having an international student um it really internationalizes the experience for all students it's not just not just the international students so that that social interaction is is really important for all of our students if you don't mind Jim I, th I think we will be teaching um it face to face I think every university will teach face to face in some way or other but um it's it's not going to be the same as this year so you know seminars will be smaller I mean smaller numbers of people um it may be that lectures uh, move largely online because lectures can be moved online and you can invest in the student experience in different kinds of ways and it may be that some of these things are long-term benefits rather than short-term 
uh, changes. Yeah, and, 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 and there's an interesting question there, isn't there? Because... Uh, you know, I think there was a line somewhere in the kind of eventual statement that Cambridge put out, because of course it was originally a leak to a student newspaper, uh, that suggested that, you know, there would be a kind of switch back to in-person, face-to-face stuff as, as soon as possible. But I guess for, for lots of students, for lots of reasons, you know, some of which are about accessibility, some of which are about convenience, um, it's actually quite a good idea to have, you know, lectures online, isn't it? I think there are certainly advantages of it. So, I mean, what we're finding is that students are able to go back and look at the lectures the remotely the remote lectures again and again when they're not sure about what's going on um and you know we forget that the lecture is not a perfect mechanism for learning and um you know the capacity to to question it is a good thing i think that the key thing though is that it's just not online that we have to have ways of interacting with stuff which just um which aren't simply about receiving uh what they're giving us but the staff need to and and i have to say are um communicating with their students through Zoom, through um, uh, through email. But I think as we begin to mature in the autumn, then we'll find other ways of doing it. And it won't just be through Zoom. I think that um, we will actually be in a position to provide physical distancing where students and actually and staff can talk to each other um, and students can talk to each other um, in a safe, um, reliable way. I think for me, the big takeaway was that uh, in the media was that actually the media just assumed that lectures are the only thing that institutions do for teaching that was for me my big takeaway um you know all the top level stuff was you know cambridge moves online but actually you know as, as adam has explained lectures are just one part of that student experience um, and you know and we know that our you know our members are going all out to make sure that they can offer as much as they can in september lectures are just one small part of that um, and so the big learning for me was actually how much the media just took that as the only thing that students do I think the thing I can't get my head around, Adam, is so, so uh, you know, even if we have, you know, slightly more sophisticated ways of doing kind of social interaction in general as a society by September, and I suspect it will get slightly better than the kind of ham-fisted stuff we've got now, even, even if that's possible, the thing I can't get my head around is, uh, you know, in truth, in the credit framework, a lot of time is independent study, and a lot of that is hanging out in libraries, talking to other students, and so on. And, and, if, and if all that social interaction is much more kind of strained... And, you know, there's not lots of thought that goes into how you kind of make that happen because you can't really bump into people on Zoom. That, that's, re- that's, that's quite tough, that bit, that, that kind of, you know, independent study, you know, community kind of thing. Yeah, it, it is. I think um, so. some things that we're, all, we're, I mean, we're doing, and I'm sure others are doing, is thinking about how we can use our spaces in order to, um, to promote that. Because, you know, a couple of metres, and, you know, the WHO guidelines are one metre, not two metres, but it, but even if with a couple of meters, you can still talk to people. Um, so I think I think that one of the challenges for um, for student unions is, is exactly how they continue to be meaningful. And I, I know that uh, they're really thinking hard about taking their societies online. Lots of the student union societies in the country are doing great things already. So I know that there are virtual yoga classes. Um, our student union has, has an annual student awards ceremony, and this year it went on to Zoom. And they had about 300 people who turned up and the, the celebration was fantastic. So I think it's not just universities that do work on student experience. I know that student unions, unions really care about making sure that the students who come to us in the autumn, whether they're returners or new students, get as good a time as they possibly can. Good. Now let's see who's been blogging for us this week. This is Kate Daubney, Head of King's Careers and Employability, the Career Service of King's College London, and one of the member services of the Careers Group. My blog is about how academics can surface more of the innate transferable skills and attributes to their subjects to help students realise and articulate better the employability value of their curriculum learning. 
In this highly challenging job market, students and graduates have even greater anxiety than usual about the value of their degree, particularly if it's not professionally aligned. So in the blog, I talk about how to capture what I call extracted employability. The huge range of transferable skills and attributes being taught and learned every day in curriculum that are innate to sociology, history and every other subject and are exactly the same skills and attributes that employers want. It's not, as Tristram Hooley suggested on Wonky a few weeks ago, difficult for students to develop these skills. They already are developing them. They just aren't aware of it and need better, richer language to capture it. And don't forget, we'd love to have your contribution on the site. If you'd like to pitch us a piece, drop us an email on team at wonky.com with your idea and we'll be in touch. Now, next up, it's Mental Health Awareness Week and the Universities UK has launched an updated version of a framework. Adam, tell us more. So we know that there's been a mental health crisis um, among young people for a long time and the COVID-19 pandemic is causing real difficulties. So Universities UK this week launched their new guidance on supporting the mental health of students and of staff. Um, The key actions they're recommending is that there is continuing to be visible senior leadership and ownership of mental health challenges. Um, But what's new in this is a real emphasis on co-production, working closely with staff and with students on strategies and services, and making sure there is accessible and well-resourced support for supporting people's mental health. Anne-Marie, you were talking earlier about uh, isolation. We, we, you know, that we, 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 can, we can easily guess, and there's definitely research that backs up the idea that, you know, isolation is a key source of kind of mental health difficulties amongst students. And so, you know, we must be going into next academic year with, you know, worries about it in this space. Absolutely, yes. And I think it, it, it's also often more ch- evidence, more challenging for those that are studying at postgraduate level than undergraduate level, obviously, both both present their own challenges um i think we, you know we've done our own research at uk so just in the international student population um and you know recently funded some research looking at mental health across phd students and their supervisors um and all of this is is really important as we go into a year where you know evidence shows evidence from the british council another survey shows that postgraduate students are, are feeling more reluctant um to, to commit to something that starts online um, and I think you know we, we have to think about how mental health factors into that for us um, it's a really big big challenge to to get our heads around how how somebody who's moved from the other side of the world come to the UK to study but is not able to access um, a, a community often it's challenging to do that anyway in, in a normal in a normal year where we could actually where we don't have a virus to deal with um, but I think you know it's a really it's really up to us as a, as a community to make sure that we have as much in place to support them um, to to get them through those those challenges to get our orientations um, online or to get them brought forward so that we can start understanding those those mental health challenges for for our students before before they come adam i've heard from 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 quite a few places that um kind of direct demand for mental health services you know on campus i mean i don't mean on campus obviously online now but you know those kind of direct demand for, for kind of direct mental health services has fallen a bit during the pandemic um is, is is there a sense that you know the kind of shape of what might be required from universities it, it might, might, might be quite different rather than just kind of you know converting everything to online as we go into september i, I think that of course of course that's got to be the case um we haven't seen such a fall but we've been pr- very proactive about how to about contacting students and particularly students who um, are not engaging with their classes so i think probably a, an element of this is needs 
us as institutions to make sure that we're keeping an eye on who's not engaging with us, because often that's a good sign that they're encountering mental health difficulties. Or indeed, there may be other difficulties which aren't about mental health, um, but which are about um, access to resources and so on. Um, this is a really challenging area, Jim, because fundamentally, universities are being expected to fill a gap in the NHS. Um, nobody turns around to universities and says, um, you've got a student who's broken their leg, um, therefore you need to set up an A&E department. But we do expect universities to meet all the mental health needs because we underfund at a national level uh, mental health support for all people. Um, I'm not trying to resile from our responsibility to look after our staff and students because it's really important. Um, but I think we just need to keep the pressure on the broader society to understand this is a societal challenge rather than just one for universities. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, there are days when, if I'm in a you know a moany mood, I will say, "Ah, oh, universities blaming wider society and lack of government support as usual." You know, quite often over like things like WP or whatever. But it also seems to me there's a hell of a lot of othering that goes on in relation to students because. You know, universities that can't access universal credit, it's universities that have to find the money for that. Mental health services are poor, it's universities that have to fix it's always universities that have to fix everything, isn't it, Amory? It is, and I think I think Adam's already hit that the, the nail on the head there. It's 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 a real challenge. I mean, we were we're already we've we done I think the challenge is we've done a really good job at, at raising the profile of of discussing mental health and and acknowledging mental health challenges, but at the same time the resources haven't been put in place across the NHS to deal with that. And a lot of universities for for a long time have been working um, hand in hand with their local NHS provision across the UK to make sure that they can support their students. So if the more we have these conversations about mental health and, and really improve people's self-awareness and, and their reflections on their own mental health, we, we do need to make sure that we have those resources in place and they can't just be down to the universities. It's got to be down to general health provision, not least, I mean, for international students in particular, we're asking them to pay a significant amount of money for an NHS um, surcharge now, increased um, for the next year. And yet we're saying to them that, that that there's not enough provision for them to access in the NHS. So I think that is a, a, a huge consumer issue that we need to think about. And it can't be up to universities to solve that alone. Mm. Adam, the other thing I was saying to someone the other day is that, you know, I, you, you can understand... Uh, and believe that, you know, mainstream public sector universities have this under control. But right at the kind of thin end of the kind of long tail of providers on the OFS register, it's hard to believe that some of the kind of micro providers have, you know, are able to put everything in place that frameworks like this suggest. I mean, I, I don't have the detail of them, but if you look at the size of them and the um, amount of money that we're able to spend as large universities, then that must be the case. Yeah, I, I, what I, re I really, really don't want to sound as if I don't think this is a, a problem or that we don't have some responsibility, but we need to think about mental health not just as being one big thing, um, but as a number of different challenges. So there are some issues around mental health which are clearly um, responsibilities of universities. So we know that there are anxieties that students have around assessment. We know that loneliness on campus is an issue. Um, and there are things that we can do to support students around that because this is, in a sense, it's the essence of what we do. Um, there are students who have really acute mental health problems. Um, uh, tragically, relatively small numbers of students in every university, every significant university, um, will have problems which need them to be sectioned or which need uh, the support of an acute trust. And the truth is that's fairly well handled, although not as well handled as it might be because that's an underfunded part. But it's the group in the middle who have quite serious uh, mental health needs 
where a bit of counselling is not going to help them. Um, that I think is the real gap. Now, immigration. The government's controversial immigration bill flew through the House of Commons on Monday night. Anne-Marie, give us a sense of the implications. Yes, uh, it, the immigration bill has continued its, uh, somewhat incredibly, um, its relentless progress through the House of Commons. Um, for, for us in the sector, obviously, this, this will end free movement for everybody. But for us, it means that staff and students from the EU or the EEA will require a visa to enter the UK from the 1st of January 2021. And also uh, the implications for the sector is that we we will need to sponsor them to enter the UK, which we have not had to do before. Uh, and that is a, an additional resource implication for the sector. Um, the impact assessment for the bill, um, interestingly, suggests that any, any anticipated drop in recruitment from EU in the EEA will be offset by an increase in recruitment from non-EU EEA nationals, largely due to the uh, improved post-study work offer, no doubt. But interestingly, it does note that it is too early to um, uh, consider the impact of COVID-19 on, on this recruitment. Um, and that's, one, that's one way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I thought, I, thought, I thought it was quite interesting that it was in slightly different font to the rest of the impact assessment, which made it, made it feel like it was added very much at the last minute. Yeah, international students, Adam. Listen, I think this is, um, I think this is hugely worrying, really. So we've... Um, We've got used to the diversity of life uh, that EU students bring to the universities in the UK, and it just enhances our lives incredibly. The, um, the current and the former president of the Student Union at Sussex are both EU nationals, and they've been absolutely fantastic. So, you know, we're going to miss this, not just financially, but we're going to miss this in terms of uh, the broader life of our country. I think we need to be mindful that the promised change to the post-study work regime should be helpful. Um, there was before COVID nineteen started hitting, just on the announcement that the government was planning to ch- change the rules, there was a massive increase in interest from India, and it's quite possible that a, a relaxation overall will help. I think the worry I've got at the moment, though, is that COVID nineteen may change that because this isn't in the bill. It's something that would come as an executive action, and clearly, as the labour market in the United Kingdom is going to into uh, meltdown, there will be pressure from some parts of um, of the country that we don't offer generous post-study work uh, terms to people from overseas. And I think if that happens, then we'll put ourselves at a massive, massive competitive disadvantage, uh, particularly at a time when Australia is actually extending their post-study work visas rather than uh, pulling them back. And Amory, just remind us where that you know, where, 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 where that kind of decision is, is at and, and what's been said so far in terms of when it might kind of kick in and who it might kick in for and so on. So the uh, the continued um, comms on this is that if you graduate or you, sorry you complete your course in summer 2021 you will be eligible for the graduate immigration route which is a two-year post-study work visa um, which is an increase from um, the current six months post-study work that um, students who are completing their course this summer wherever they are um, uh, can benefit from but of course if you've returned home and you're completing your course online you're not going to benefit from that that either um, which is which is a challenge, I think, for, for many international students. Um, we have, obviously, this immigration bill is working to um, an incredibly tight time frame. Um, I, I mean, for me, I, I, I am incredulous about the speed of, of the time frame. Um, I think, you know, it, there's, a, there's a lot to do before the end of the year. Um, and But we, we anticipate that, we, you know, we've been 
asking very much for more detail on the eligibility criteria about the graduate route to be published. But we, we are assured that anyone who completes a, a, a graduate level course, a degree level course in summer 2021, even if they start online in autumn 2020 and, and move to the UK at a later stage, will be eligible for that route. But there's there's no there's no detail on the implementation through legislation yet. Adam, have we become too dependent on international student fee income? You know, there's lots of commentary that has appeared around the edges over this, you know, on, on, on what, what, what are described as university business models over the past couple of weeks, you know, particularly in Scotland, actually. You know, is it the case that, you know, th- th- this has all gone a bit too far and we've, we've become, you know, kind of addicted to, that, to, to the income? Well, I'd say that over the last decade and longer, um, there has been a tacit um, pact between universities and governments. And I do, I do mean governments. So, I mean, this is true in Scotland and Wales, as it's true, and in Northern Ireland, as it's true in, in England. And that deal has gone something like this. We will underfund you for research. Um, we recognise that your research is really important. Um, and we will give you most of the money it takes to conduct world-leading research. But we won't give you it all. Um, we'll, in the round, we'll, broadly speaking, fund you to teach students from our country. Um, now, in Scotland, they don't fund enough um, to um, the, the funding is insufficient to teach the students uh, from Scotland. But there, there's students coming over from England and from elsewhere, um, and that gives them some balance. But if you look at that economy, and just as those two elements, then universities will lose money. Um, so the third part of the bargain was you can fund that through bringing in international students and we'll support you to do so. And, you know, minister after minister has been on trade missions with university leaders, including myself, to try to increase the number of international students precisely so that we can maintain the excellence of the UK research base. Yeah, I mean, Gavin Williamson even explicitly called that a deal, didn't he, at UK conference back in September? He did. And I think it's a bit rich now for people to start criticising us for having taken that part of the bargain. And quite apart from anything else, it's absolutely true that international students enhance our lives and also they enhance the UK's soft power yeah um, I can't tell you the number of people when I travel internationally who talk to me very warmly about their university education in universities I've worked in or elsewhere and have a very very different approach to the UK than people who've studied in the United States or studied in Australia so it's a good deal for Britain it's a good deal for our universities and it's a good deal for UK students and Marie are you picking up any sense of you know what 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 where the kind of UK's reputation is at, either from some of the research that's coming in or, uh, you know, kind of some of the feedback, you know, you might get. I mean, you know, there, there are, I've, I've certainly seen some fairly negative stuff written from, you know, students from China and India and so on. But I, I, I can't I can't call whether this is, you know, the sorts of things that, you know, catch the eye of people who write newspaper headlines or whether, you know, there are concerns about the way the UK has treated international students. There are concerns about the way the UK has handled the, the pandemic and the lockdown. Yes, I mean, there has been some research recently that um, to, to indicate that at the moment the UK is is sort of not scoring quite as highly as some of our competitors in terms of uh, perceptions on how they're handling the lockdown. Um, not sure that, that we're really seeing that translate into um, uh, a lack of interest because I think as Adam says, that that soft power element is still very strong. We have a we do have a lot of people still who who would want to come. Um, and study in the UK and that the UK is still their destination of choice, um, not just because of the extended post-study work, but because of the, the quality of our education sector um, and also the, the, the soft power of the UK society as well. You know, you know, you know, you can't underestimate um, the, the soft power that we do have in terms of you know football. 
um, pop music, all of these other elements of UK culture, which really, really appeal. Um, and I, so I think it, it's too, I think the most, the most challenging thing now is, is, is the lack of, uh, of information of what's going to happen in terms of online starts. And, and, and I think as more institutions come out and, and make their announcements along the lines of Cambridge and Bolton, I think that will be what really helps things forward rather than um, the immigration bill itself. I think for, for EU and EEA nationals, it, it is much more challenging because they are moving to a position where they are feeling um, much more disadvantaged um, than they've uh, been before. And of course, if they arrive in September um, for a face-to-face start, it's, it's not a problem. They can they would be eligible to apply for for the settlement scheme, but I think it's more challenging for those that arrive after first of January. And and we we as a sector just need to make sure that we do a good job of communicating how we're going to to welcome them and support them and and and, and help them through that that slightly different. Um, regime that they're going to have to uh, navigate. I, I think that's right. I think there are a couple of wins that we've got though, and or um, things that we could be positive about, and they're they're kind of um, uh, Schadenfreude wins. The first is students from the EU and the EEA who come in September are still eligible for the student loan uh, finance, and I think that that's a that's a one-off opportunity for this autumn. But the other is that we just have a, um, a prime minister who is not declaring war on our primary market in China. Um, but in the United States and in Australia, the leaders leaders are. So I don't welcome that because I think that international relations are better when they're not shouty. Uh, but at least we're not part of that campaign. Now, nature is healing. Correlate is back. Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate? The podcast segment that gives an entirely new meaning to social distancing. With return to campus in some form on the cards, thoughts are turning to university estates and the likely number of students on campus. Previous investment in the states is likely, with class sizes shrinking and PPE being added to teaching rooms, to prove key. I've potted the FTE number of people on campus, that staff and all students, against the gross internal area in metre squared. Do larger providers have more floor space? Yes, but does it correlate? I think it doesn't. Um... That's that's a bold move, Minister. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm going purely on instinct here. I think I'd say no. I'd say no, but my reasoning is because the um, the confounding factor here will be research intensity. So there'll be lots of large labs um, in areas with in places with relatively small numbers of students. The answer is yes, it does. R squared is 0.78, suggesting a very strong correlation. What's striking is the huge amounts of space providers own, though of course not all of it is suitable for teaching. Manchester and Edinburgh are among the largest providers, in both senses. I've added details on the number of sites and the number of buildings each provider owns to the visualisation. I particularly envy the Aberystwyth Estates team, who manage 688 buildings across 15 sites. Data is from the recently released HESA Estates record, and where the data doesn't exist, as notably with the University of Birmingham who chose not to submit their estates data for this year, I've not plotted it. And finally, with a full sector-wide bailout still missing in action, conversations have been turning to ideas of reconfiguration, collaboration and merger. Now, before we discuss, DK caught up with former Wales Education Minister Leighton urged to merge Andrews uh, earlier on in the week to take a trip down merger memory lane. 
I'm Leighton Andrews. I was the Minister for Education uh, in the Welsh Government from December 2009 until June 2013. I'm now Professor of Practice in Public Leadership and Innovation in Cardiff Business School. Uh, so when you first came into the ministerial role, the move towards um, a reconfiguration and collaboration in Wales was already quite far advanced. What was your impressions of the idea at the time? Well, the policy had been there for 10 years and had actually predated the creation of the National Assembly. Uh, And there was all party consensus uh, on the need for reconfiguration of the higher education sector. Uh, Faster progress needed to be made that the Welsh Government and the Higher Education Funding Council for Wales needed to use all the levers at their disposal. So my understanding was that the uh, rationale was about supporting Welsh providers to gain sufficient scale and heft to compete in the UK and internationally, and also to drive efficiency savings for the money that was going out from the Welsh government through HEFQ. Um, is that about right? Yes, I, I mean, I think so. I think efficiency became more important um, post-austerity, as it were, um, the real issue was about uh, competitiveness of the institutions, their ability to provide high-quality courses uh, and to win research funding. I mean, looking across Wales, arguably this agenda was successful in building a larger institution in southwest Wales, and arguably there was no real change in North Wales. But it was in South East Wales that we saw, I mean, most of the heat and most of the press interest. Can you tell me your impressions of the state of HE in South East Wales at the point that you started? Well, there had been a long-standing debate going back uh, several years about the relationship between the then University of Glamorgan, um, uh, the University of Wales in Newport, and UWIC, uh, as it was, but had now become Cardiff Metropolitan University. And it was had always been clear that UWIC was reluctant, really, to engage in merger discussions. Uh, and there'd been a previous proposal that had come close in around 2004 for a merger between Glamorgan and UWIC. Uh, and there was a lot of feeling that uh, the proposals had never been properly put to the governing body in, in UWIC at that point. Um, it was controversial. It was a situation where the then governing body and vice-chancellor were very adamant they didn't want to be part of a merger process. And we determined that if necessary, we would use all of the levers at our disposal. Uh, clearly, some of those levers were financial. From 2010, uh, we became more dirigiste in our approach to funding to the higher education sector via HEFCU. Uh, setting down some very clear goals for them. Um, but also, of course, there were legal levers that we could use if we chose in certain circumstances. Yeah, the Education Reform Act 1998, which gave you specific the ability to dissolve um, a higher education uh, corporation. I mean, obviously, you would need to do that if the merger had taken place. But at the time in the press, there was almost the impression that you had started this process to offer a binary choice to Cardiff Met, either to, to merge or close, basically. Is that right? No, it was it was never like that. Um, I mean, there was an assumption, I think, that if uh, if higher education institutions were not willing to cooperate with the notion of a Welsh higher education sector, then they would lose out um, in terms of funding. Uh, when the funding regime changed to a more student-based um, funding system, as it did from 2012, 
uh, it was clear that governments would have less strategic opportunity to intervene through funding than they had had before, uh, as, mm. as so, so little of the funding was going to come essentially directly from government. Um, I think in terms of the agenda, I felt it dogged all the discussions between the Welsh government and the Welsh higher education sector. It was always the elephant in the room in any kind of discussion on future higher education strategy. And it had to be resolved Either reconfiguration was going to happen or it wasn't. And we were just going to, you know, have to bite the bullet and, and decide on that. I had given myself three years to try and pull it around. We achieved, you know, the bulk of what we'd sought to do through that agenda. We're looking back now eight, eight or nine years on. Do you think that the changes that have been made to the Welsh sector have been beneficial overall? Overall, I do. I mean, I think we have a smaller number of stronger institutions, which was always our objective. I still think there are unresolved issues in northeast Wales. Uh, you know, I think there are, there are issues there around the strength of the institution, relationship uh, with FE college, with the FE colleges and so on. Hmm. But, but overall, across Wales, yes, I think it's been a positive development. So in South Wales, obviously, Cardiff Met remains a successful independent organisation, despite the warnings at the time that it was looking precarious. Do you think that Cardiff Met made the right decision to stay out of the merge? I think it would have been, we would have had a stronger post-92 institution if they'd been part of that. Um, however, they're under new leadership now. Uh, they made significant strides forward. Overall, I think the, you know, that, that reconfiguration agenda has been put to bed. Um, and I think the agenda is a new one and a different one. With the onset of the financial problems that we anticipate many universities are going to be facing after the end of the lockdown and the COVID-19 pandemic, it feels like that the ideas of mergers and reconfigurations are back on the agenda. And what would you say to ministers, to ministerial advisors, to vice chancellors that were perhaps uh, thinking about the implications of this? I mean, what advice do you think you could offer them from your experience? Well, I think there has to be an, an, a compelling um, educational and a compelling strategic reason for going through a process of merger and reconfiguration. Um, I hope it wouldn't be driven simply by the financial situation of particular institutions. At the end of the day, you know, the quality of the courses on offer and their appeal their, their, to students, their ability to grow a significant student base – um, have got to be the driving factors uh, in any merger process. And there is a danger, I think, sometimes that the, the crisis factors drive the merger agenda rather than uh, a broader look at educa the educational opportunities. Adam, are you feeling an urge to merge? Well, do you know, the logic is, is very difficult to, um, to refute at the moment. So although I haven't got any specific plans at the moment, I think if we look at the sector as a whole, the COVID-19 challenge could risk somewhere between nothing and £7 billion of international fee income. Um, and I, my guess is it will be at least half of that. And there are many, many universities that just can't maintain uh, normal operations for more than a year or, more, or so um, with losing that income. Um, bear in mind that work by Matt Robert Parthenon, uh, EY Parthenon, has shown that even before we came into this crisis, 14 universities reported deficits in each of the last three years. And that three of those, and, and half of those, seven of those, reported deteriorating deficits in each of those years. So I think it's inconceivable that there'll be as many universities in 24 months' time as there are now. So my sense is, yes, there is going to be a merger movement. I think that the key thing for us as a sector 
is to have ownership of that and do things that work for universities and work for our students and for our staff rather than wait until people get into crisis and then desperately try to bail out institutions which which are on the brink. Adam, what is it possible to actually kind of save money on as a result of, you know, collaboration and merger? Is it is it management costs? Is it is it campuses? Is it you know, what is it that, you know, can you know can generate savings that that, that are attractive in, in, in at least in principle? So I think this is a key question because the the um the worst kind of merger is one where you go into just because both of you are going into some form of crisis. Um the, the truth is is that delivering cost savings is much more difficult than anybody thinks. Um Integrating back offices or integrating professional services will be phenomenally difficult. Um, systems uh, integration is not easy. So I think there will be um, elements of wanting to have an improved offer. Um, it will be thinking about the courses you can offer. Can you do things differently? Um, can you actually have um, f- focus on uh, one thing in one place and uh, something in, in the partner institution? There will be over time, I think, the capacity to save on some of the um, some of the core services but we mustn't be naive about this and i think we need to be clear that mergers need to be for positive reason and that if you're going to get if you're going to get into a partnership with an institution you have to have a similarity of strategic intent rather than thinking i'm just going to go with my neighbor um, who may be extremely different to me and think that it's going to make a better institution um, there's an old adage in social policy which is if you want to get rich don't marry a poor person and i think there's a there's a real risk of um, of sort of shotgun marriages being forced down from Whitehall or being forced by um, governing bodies. In, in, in terms of the kind of that, that, that choice thing, Anne-Marie, when, you know, uh, particularly if, you know, you're not, you haven't sp- spent all your childhood in, you know, in the UK, if, if when international students are looking at the UK system, are they a bit baffled by the just, the, the, you know, the sheer range of choice? Well, I think a lot of them, a lot of them are, do, do take geography into account when they make a decision, but it's it's mainly... The, the academic decision that they're taking. So it's it's the strength of the the course offer or the specialism that that that's what really um, is the the motivating factor, and that's that's one of the strengths that we have in the UK. But you know, geography will will always be an issue. Um, you know that that people well a factor in an institu- institution's decision. Um, so you know, if if an international student is is thinking about where to go, they will they will put geography into it. But but it's the academic offer. That is more important. I think, from an international student point of view, one one concern that I would want to flag around mergers is, you know, going back to our previous discussion on the new immigration system. We need to get that. We need to get that right from uh, a point of view of um, mitigating the hostile environment, because there's a huge risk to international students around mergers um, of incredibly damaging confusion um, to their experience. Um, you know, if their sponsor is subsumed or, or merged with another institution, how does that have an impact on their visa? And how quickly can we work to resolve that? And, and how supportive is the Home Office going to be around that? So that's a really practical question. Adam, obviously, you know, officially we've had a decade now of government policy in theory encouraging new providers and a diversity of providers and more providers do you think you know that kind of era is over and really you know this is going to be a decade dominated by you know this kind of rationalization of the number of providers i'm not sure it's going to be an either or i think certainly at the at the larger more substantial end of the sector then there will certainly be consolidation um i think that that wouldn't necessarily mean you don't get the proliferation of small niche providers who may come in may succeed may fail um, but I, but I do really believe there'll be significant consolidation. 
I was just wondering, as Anne-Marie was talking though, is that maybe some of the solution is going to be, rather than just a, a straightforward merger between uh, two equivalent universities, is you get something developing a bit like the old University of London or, um, or a multi-academy trust, so that you retain the independent identities of the institutions, but underlying them, they're within a group, and you can get savings th- from the group, and you can see work within that. So that's a possibility that would help with the visa problem, but I think it might help in all sorts of other ways too. So that's about it for this week. To find out more about anything we've discussed today, you'll find links on the episode page at wonky.com, where you can also leave your thoughts and comments. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us automatically. Uh, Just search for The Wonky Show on your favourite podcast directory, or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you think you've got what it takes to be a guest on the show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks again to our guests, Adam and Anne-Marie, everyone at Team Wonky for making the show happen. And of course, to you for listening. Until next week, stay wonky. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 